coal is here to stay in our lifetime. Your question is then, how can we make that more carbon efficient? And the way you can do that is by reducing the use of it. And that is what we do. This is Energy Cast, and I'm Jay Downhauer. Today we are talking about refining coal, making it cleaner than it would otherwise be pulled directly from the mine. As you know, 10 years ago, I ran an association called the Clean Coal Technology Foundation of Texas, and that phrase has always been mercilessly mocked by Coal Power's opponents. Clean coal. You've heard a lot about it. So let's take a tour of the state-of-the-art clean coal facility. Amazing! Yeah, yeah, nothing on the other side. You got us there. Oh, wait, why don't you ask NRG how Petronova is doing, or net power on their facility that's about to expand to commercial scale. Even then, clean coal really referred to doing something about the CO2, or carbon capture and storage, which we've discussed in a few episodes on this program. Scrubbers on modern coal plants take care of the rest, the sulfur dioxide, nitrogen oxides, particulate matter. These days, all that's coming out of the stack is water vapor and CO2, or what you're breathing right now. But there was one member in my association that was concerned with what happens to coal before it's fired through the boiler. The company had a process for refining coal before combustion, leading to greater efficiency and less pollution. Think about it. You don't burn crude oil in your car, but we basically burn crude coal in our plants. There's a sliding scale for this technology, and our guest today has three products on offer that address that. The simplest and arguably most effective coal treatment is to simply dry it out. My guess says coal can be up to 40% water. Remove the water and you reduce the shipping weight, the amount of coal used in combustion, ash, and theoretically less CO2. The challenge has been the expense of keeping coal stable once it's dried out. My guess says they've solved this stability issue by actually putting the bad stuff back in the coal. Now that might sound a little counterintuitive, but he's got a decent point, and there's a solution for taking these volatiles out and keeping them out, but it's early days and the drying is what's most important at this time. Today's guest, and recently my guest from episode 55, made a point that new coal generation may be a hard sell in the United States, but not in other parts of the world. For these places, coal's the only thing that makes sense to bring reliable baseload power to millions of people without anything. It's a trajectory that Americans really have no control over. But technology, like carbon capture and the technology today, could ensure that these developing nations burn it smarter. Now, I made my last speech on behalf of the coal industry about nine years ago. It was at an Austin City Council meeting, and that was regarding a resource generation and climate protection plan the city was considering to divest itself of a coal plant far outside the city limits. I was speaking in favor of the city keeping the plant in its portfolio. Now, just this week, I looked online, and it turns out video from that meeting is still available. Morning, Mayor and Council members. My name is Jay Dowenhauer. I'm a energy analyst here in Austin, and we believe that technology drives energy efficiency, cleaner skies, and affordable power. <laughs> now, I'll admit there were some points I made that sound silly nearly 10 years later. Natural gas is reliable. It's also very clean. But 
One of the problems is, is that it has a price volatility. And so um, we're not very sure if we'll see price spikes like that again with natural gas. You just have to be careful about that. Yeah, fracking has made gas prices stable nearly ever since. But there's a point I made back then that still holds true and fits what my guest is saying now. Consider this, and I'm probably going to get some snickers by saying this, but it's true. The less coal we use, the dirtier skies will be. And this is how it works. Developing countries are building new coal plants faster than we could ever mothball our existing coal fleet in this country. And the less we invest in new innovative scrubber technologies for this abundant resource that other countries are going to continue to use, the dirtier the plants in those developing countries are going to be. And this being Austin, there was, of course, people who didn't exactly agree with coal power. Years later, this dude from Belgrade still ticks me off. One thing I would like to say, though, is... The idea that, uh, man, the more coal we burn, the cleaner the air is going to get. Reminds me of those old Chesterfield cigarette ads from the 50s that said, Chesterfields, they're actually good for my voice. Burning coal is not good for us. Let's get out of the coal business. When I passed him in the lobby later on, it was the closest I ever came to just cold cocking a dude. Instead, I shook his hand. But there's a little satisfaction in the fact that developing countries do need energy. Plus, the group's official position on carbon-neutral nuclear power is, as of 2019, and I quote, Belgrade proposes the licensing, construction, and operation of new nuclear reactors utilizing the fission process. Congratulations, you're officially irrelevant. On coal, it's a position I've kept and will continue to keep. And it's one of the viewpoints that I think makes this program unique. I support an all-of-the-above approach. Even back then, I was in support of power from all sources. I'm not saying we buy more coal assets for the city, but I'm saying we should consider keeping Fayette running at full capacity to hedge against high utility rates that could hurt our hardworking Austin families and businesses. You cannot deny that coal is critical to the growth and prosperity of the developing world, and my guess is, if anything, making the world brighter for them. My guest today is Robin Eaves, president and CEO of Clean Coal Technologies, Inc., a coal refining company with a headquarters on Madison Avenue in New York City. You know, as you'd expect. Robin is British, and that explains his accent. He has held positions in the global energy markets his whole career. CCT has three refining technologies under their pristine banner to help improve low-grade coals around the world. They began test operations in Oklahoma, but have moved their equipment and operations to Wyoming, which is the heart of the Powder River Basin, and essentially the Saudi Arabia of coal on Earth. And while... They they may be located in the heart of the American interior. Their ambitions are most certainly global. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Robin Eaves. We're here with Robin Eaves, president and CEO of Clean Coal Technologies. And Robin, it feels like a strange time to be starting up a coal company. Why do you think it's the opportune time now? Yeah, so that's a good question. After two years of decline in the global coal market, demand began to grow in 2017 by 1 or 2%. 2018, it was an even stronger year. And it's been driven by strong coal power generation in China and India, primarily. Coal demand is expected to grow consistently now up to 2030. Also, the unmatched period of coal power generation growth in India is set to continue. This is creating a really huge opportunity for U.S. coal in the export market. And our technology is ideal ideally placed to support this growth. Secondly, 
our technology is capable of refining coal and producing all the valuable products from it. And this is consistent with an oil refinery. You refine crude oil and you get all the byproducts. Coal can produce sulfur, carbon, asphalt, rare earth minerals, oil, water, and that creates a second business for the coal industry, both here in the United States and around the world. So I think it's a very good time uh, for the coal industry and for our technology, which at the moment we believe is the globally leading technology out there for dehydration. That's an interesting point you brought up about all the byproducts, and I'll get to that in a second. But the core technology, Robin, is you're essentially drying coal out. It might not seem like a big deal, but why is that so important? Well, currently, shippers are carrying anywhere from 25 to 50% moisture in their cargoes, which is clearly economical suicide. By drying coal, you increase the BTU value substantially, thus making it a far more efficient and economically viable product. A good analogy for this is wood. If you burn a whole lot of wet logs, it takes a huge amount of time to create any heat or energy out of that. And it's exactly the same as coal. You increase the energy value, but you also decrease the amount of coal you need to produce the same amount of energy. Robin, you talk about companies in the past that have tried this, something about coal becoming more porous when it's dried. Tell us why that's a problem and how you found a workaround. Anyone can dry coal. You can put it in your oven, you can dry it. But when you dry coal, it extracts all the water from the coal. It looks like a pumice stone, very friable, full of holes, which actually creates a fairly dangerous product because that's very combustible. The main thing that's been missing here is the ability to stabilize the coal after you've dried it. So many people have tried putting additives in it, coating it with different stuff, briquetting it. All of this has failed. We don't crush the coal. The DNA of the coal is the same when it goes in as when it comes out. Where the main patentable value of our technology is, without getting too technical, we take out a slipstream of all the volatiles as we dry the coal. And maybe it's 6%, maybe it's 8%. And once we've dried it, we reintroduce that slipstream back into the coal. So all the pores the water has been taken out of are filled up with its own volatiles volatile gases. It coats the coal. Not only does it stabilize it, it increases the BTU value even more than the value by drying it. In the end, we have a very solid, valuable product which will not reabsorb water and will not combust in transportation. And it's also a dust-free product, which is for the rail market, very, very important, not only in the United States, but globally. Sure. When you're saying volatiles, what are you talking about? That's all the bad stuff. The sulfur, mercury, all the bad stuff which you want to take out. If you're really going to clean the coal up, you take out all the volatiles. And you were saying something about putting it back in? Yes. We've got three different patented technologies. The one we're looking at right now, which has got the interest around the world, is a dehydration technology. This is not the technology which is primarily concerned with cleaning coal. It dries it, stabilizes it, and increases the BTU value. In the end, we end up using 40% less coal for the same energy value than would before. In the end, although you're putting the bad stuff back in, you're using less coal than you were before. QED you've got a better and more efficient product and putting less bad stuff into the atmosphere. Would there be a way to take the volatiles out and keep the volatiles out? You see where no, yeah, no, money. you wouldn't need to. About 80% of world coal now is bad quality, very moist, high in volatiles, because a lot of the good coal has been burned. The consuming countries do not want to keep importing all this very low quality coal. It's inefficient for the boilers, it's inefficient for the economy, and it's inefficient to move. This technology is to address that problem. It's not to address totally 
cleaning up the coal and to make it environmentally acceptable all around the world. But you're using so much less coal, you are, in essence, reducing the carbon footprint and you're actually putting less bad stuff into the atmosphere. Okay. I was executive director of a clean coal foundation about 10 years ago. And while most of these members were concerned about what happens after the coal leaves the stack, at least one, like you, was concerned about conditioning coal, which is what we're doing here. They also claimed that they could remove the mercury, maybe even the sulfur. Can you take all those out as well? How does this compare to what they were? The, the simple answer to that is yes, we can. But you've got two forms of sulfur. You've got the paritic sulfur and the organic sulfur. And one you take out completely. The other one is harder, but you can take it out. We have three technologies. Pristine SA, which is synthetic anthracite, to take coal down to a fixed carbon. And if you co-fire that with natural gas or biomass, you've got a completely clean burning product. However, that is not what we're focused on right now. That'll be our second or third generation plant. And then we have the pristine technology, which will clean the coal up completely. But as you take out all the volatiles, it's an expensive process. And in most parts of the world right now, like it or hate it, they're more interested in the efficiency and the economics of the coal rather than the cleanliness of it. I'm curious, if you take care of the coal before it's combusted, that should lighten the load for the scrubbers. Is that what you're after or you want to condition it to some point? It's a very good question. I came out of the oil business. When I came into this company 10 years ago, my first thought was, look, you don't burn raw crude oil. <laughs> so why are we burning raw coal? I see all these post-combustion technologies, which made no sense to me because basically you're creating the problem then trying to clean it up. You've got to be looking for a pre-combustion solution. And that is what our technology is. Not only before you combust it, makes it far more efficient. And that's why our technology is being looked at by some of the major gasification companies that can provide a very good feedstock or gasification units around the world because it's consistent, far more efficient fuel. When it goes through to the scrubbers and everything else, you don't have all the massive amount of dirt from a very low quality being combusted and then having to extract all the bad stuff at the other end. However, if there was a real demand for it, our technology could replace scrubbers. Mm. Scrubbers are extremely expensive and inefficient. And the cost of maintaining scrubbers and cleaning them, once you clean them, you've got a tremendous amount of very, very harmful waste to get rid of. We believe that in the next five years or so, our technology could be advanced enough to replace scrubbers and far more economically and efficiently. That's amazing. Now, you had a test unit in Oklahoma, and it's my understanding that you've moved operations to Wyoming. So you've really brought the mountain to Muhammad. And for those who know anything about coal, I take it the business model now is you want to condition the coal near the mines before it gets on the rail and heads off, right? 100% because yeah. we don't want to transport the water. And especially here in the United States, ash is a huge problem. And once it's stabilized and coated, we have a dust-free product. So that will be very important for internal transportation here. You mentioned this in your opening answer, but look, everyone you talk to talks about coal being dead, but that is far from it. Tell us a little bit more about the realities of the market today. It's added to me from your opening statement was that America's future in coal is to export it. Yes, absolutely. That is where the market in the United States is going because whether this current government believes in coal, doesn't believe in coal, they've made a lot of lip service to it, but haven't done an awful lot to start building new coal-fired power plants. It's not going to happen here in the United States. We know that. Yeah. However, last November, we were in India and we met with the Minister of Coal and with the Chairman of Coal India. They're the largest coal users in the world. They firmly believe in order to address the 300 million people in India without access to any form of energy, they'll have to double their use of coal by 2022. And then you look in sub-Saharan Africa, where over 500 million people have no access to energy. Then Southeast Asia, as a second engine of growth for here, there are more than 800 million people combined. Yet their average annual per capita electricity consumption is about one-seventh of that in 
in Europe. So increasing coal power generation supported by new coal plants under construction and our technology, this will be the main driver of coal demand growth in these countries. We welcome all forms of alternative renewable energy. It's important to note that it's not always reliable and in many places it's geographically dependent. You have to have a base form of energy. And then you've got all the some minor forms of energy. They all come with a lot of baggage, geographically dependent, weather dependent, but coal is the cheapest, most accessible form of energy all around the world. And that you will always need because the wind doesn't always blow, <laughs> the sun doesn't always shine, and in some places neither happen. You talk about all the people around the world, things like a billion people still don't have access to energy. And then you have people in developing parts of the world that might have, and God bless them, but they have a couple of yep. solar panels in their village. And I recently interviewed a gentleman who's very staunch environmentalist, very proactive about climate change. His answer was, we need to see more nuclear in developing parts of the world. But one of the points that I found fascinating was he said, look, there's electricity and then there's real electricity, right? People want to have TVs, air conditioners. Share some of your thoughts about the people's right to have real electricity and how you guys think you can make a difference there. Well, you hit the nail on the head right then. It's the people's right. They're not asking for anything that's different. And as you say, there are literally billions of people out there that either have limited access or no access to electricity whatsoever. Any of these alternative forms of energy are okay, but they come with baggage. The only form of energy that can really get to a lot of these people in these remote areas, coal is really the answer. You can put, as you say, a village, you might be able to put a couple of solar panels up, but it's inefficient and you've got to have the storage and the grid to make it work. And these places, I've got to be careful how to put this, but they don't have the knowledge or the infrastructure to be able to distribute that form of power. Coal is very simple, and that is why India is so focused on it. That's why China is so focused on it and some parts of Africa. And there's a lot of new coal-fired power plants being built. Robin, you're addressing sulfur. You're addressing mercury, NOx, particulate matter. All these issues that are associated with coal that people really should focus on, you're addressing them. And then yet at the end of the day, right, all they're going to care about is carbon dioxide, CO2. So how will this drawing help with CO2? Well, first and foremost, you probably know better than I do how many billions of dollars have been channeled in, certainly over here, into carbon dioxide technology that has failed. One of the huge reasons for the failing is where do you store it? Our technology is not built, designed, or envisioned to in itself reduce the carbon footprint. However, because what we do to the coal makes it more efficient and reduces the amount of coal that you use at any one time, you're reducing the carbon footprint. And look, my background, the Coal Foundation was specific to carbon capture. And of course, there's some places where we've seen them use it for things like enhanced oil recovery. Regardless, everyone drives in their own lane and can't solve all the world's problems. But it would seem to me that by raising the coal grade, that in itself would make an eventual carbon capture retrofit easier to do. Have you had those conversations? We haven't had those per se, but we did have about uh, three or four years ago, Mitsubishi in our office, they were talking about it. We spoke to GE about it a long time ago. But the problem is people come and go in these companies have have different views on things. But what you're saying is is actually true. That is one of our soapbox type promotion of this technology. If you're making a better, more efficient energy, you are going to reduce the amount of carbon footprint you're putting out there. And it's like if everyone does their little bit and our technology does their bit, then carbon footprint will be addressed. Yeah, absolutely. And Robin, it's my understanding you're in New York, right? Yes. Yeah. I'd have to imagine that conversations you have with people at 
dinners are similar to the ones I had when I was working for the Coal Foundation in Austin, Texas. I had a lot of friends who were like, Coal, really? Do you really believe in this? I'm like, heck yeah, I believe in this. Tell me, what are conversations like at dinners with friends in New York about what you're doing? Well, Bloomberg doesn't invite me to dinner any longer, so no, I don't have to worry about that. There are a lot of smart people in and around New York, and believe it or not, they get it. They're fascinated by the technology, first and foremost. Yeah. We've had some good investment dollars come in. They understand what we're doing and they're actually very supportive of it. There is a side of New York and I think really promoted more by Bloomberg and look, I happen to like Bloomberg. I like a lot what he does. I just don't agree with his policy on coal. But if you take him out of the equation, we had a big article written about us and I think they put a photograph of us right outside one of the big coal-fired power plants right over the East River and they're saying coal country comes to Madison Avenue. And it was a well-received article about us. No, I think that people understand that there's no easy answer to the carbon problem and that if you look granularly into what we're doing, that is why our technology is so exciting, not just to the United States, but globally, because it does the bit for coal in the complete picture of carbon reduction. We do not claim that we'll not sit at the dinner table and start promoting our technology as reducing the carbon footprint. It doesn't, but it's like you see somebody driving a car. If they drive 20 miles less, of course they're doing their bit to help it. And so we're doing our bit in the use of coal around the world. And if we build plants all over the world, world, each plant conceivably can reduce the carbon footprint by three, four, five percent. And if you do that a thousand, two thousand times all over the world, you'll you make a huge contribution to it. Absolutely. So, Ram, you touched on this. You have about three different technologies and they're all in different stages. What is your next step other than the Wyoming move? We've got huge support from Wyoming and we are very close to reassembling the plant in the second generation form, which is actually making it even more efficient. And that takes us straight into commercialization. We were in India just recently. India has been very keen on our technology for many years. We've already got an investment from Jindal Power and Steel. Indonesia also, which is the largest exporter of thermal coal in the world. One of the very big investors stands to be quite senior in the government there. They are desperate need of our technology. And thirdly, we have developed the kind of relationship we've got with Wyoming University, with the universities in Indonesia and in Australia, and looking at specifically for their grades of coal and what it can do to help. And also, they're very keen on using it as a refinery for the coal to produce all the very valuable byproducts. Yeah. Before we go into the lightning round, let's touch on that real quick. Tell us about the benefits of the byproducts. They're saleable right? Yeah, absolutely. Well, you, you know as well as I do, all the different products from carbon, asphalt for the roads, water, it's valuable. It's not cooking off, it's not venting off, right? Well, that's it. Yeah, exactly. And then you've got all the chemicals and rare earth minerals, oil. If you add them up, the least value is used as an energy source. The byproducts are far more valuable. It's a mineral rich rock. There we are, exactly, yeah. Robin, going to finish with a lightning round of your thoughts on different energy technologies, starting yeah. with natural gas. Infrastructure and storage and price volatility. Crude oil. Availability of the right type of crude oil in the right place. Nuclear. After Fukushima, I think there's a lot of doubts, a lot of fear of ever using it. Coal. Coal is the most accessible, abundant, transportable, and economically viable source of energy in the world. And then coal after your process. Well, then I think after our process, it's one of the most efficient and economically viable products anywhere. Shifting to wind geographically dependent, reliant on subsidies. To build a lot of these windmills, they need a product called neodymium. And this comes specifically from China. And to mine it, you
you need arsenic and chemicals. Again, you look at wind, nice, clean energy. No, you look at what's behind it and it's not so clean. Everything's got a drawback. Solar. Here again, geographically dependent, heavily subsidized, disposing of old panels is becoming a real issue. Biofuels. People have been looking at biofuels for years and I haven't seen anything that's really been commercially successful. Hydroelectric. Hydroelectric, geothermal, I'll put them in the same thing. They're also geographically dependent and I don't see them as competition to any of the main energy sources. Energy storage. We know it's a problem for carbon and we know it's a problem for natural gas. So I'm not an expert on that. Electric vehicles. Well, you've got to make the electricity from something, don't you? So, you know. You make it from you, coal. You, exactly. Make it from coal or weather. So, yes. Energy efficiency. Well, that's one thing that we are focused on. We're looking at the various energy sources and obviously focusing on coal and trying to see how we can make it more efficient. And we believe our technology is doing that, which is one of the most important parts of it. Honestly, I would say I'd see you more as an energy efficiency company than a coal well, facing well, company. Well, that's what I'm basically saying. That's what we are, but it's focused on coal. And then finally, nuclear fusion. Yeah, you need somebody that's a lot brighter than I am to go into that. Yeah, <laughs> that's too scientific for me. All right. Robin Eves, Clean Coal Technologies, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Thank you so much. That was Robin Eves, president and CEO of Clean Coal Technologies, Inc., based in New York City. Robin says the University of Wyoming's Energy Research Division has fully validated their technology. They even built a small demo version of their unit at the school, all as part of an ongoing effort to make the most out of Powder River Basin coal. You can find plenty of pictures and presentations about this technology on energy-cast.com, as well as on Instagram at Host Energy. I want to thank Robin for his time, as well as Sean Mahoney for working to set this up. All guests are sent the raw and completed audio the week of release. So far, no complaints. Be sure to leave us a positive review on iTunes. That gets the word out. Music was produced by Sean Stroop at Stroop Loops. That wraps up episode 58. Be sure to join us next week when we meet the head of one of the nation's oldest energy efficiency companies and how the name of the game has changed dramatically over the last quarter century. Until then, I'm Jay Dauenhauer. We'll see you next time. Thank you.